Section 24 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. A Chain of Cities, Part 1. One day in midwinter, some years since, during a journey from Rome to Florence, perforce too rapid to allow much wayside sacrifice to curiosity, I waited for the train at Narni. There was time to stroll far enough from the station to have a look at the famous old bridge of Augustus, broken off short in mid-Tiber. While I stood admiring, the measure of the impression was made to overflow by the gratuitous grace of a white-cowled monk who came trudging up the road that wound to the gate of the town. Narani stood in its own presented felicity on a hill a good space away, boxed in behind its perfect grey wall, and the monk, to oblige me, crept slowly along and disappeared within the aperture. Everything was distinct in the clear air, and the view exactly as like a bit of background by an Umbrian master as it ideally should have been. The winter is bare and brown enough in southern Italy, and the earth reduced to more of a mere anatomy than among ourselves, for whom the very carnery of its exposed state, naked and unashamed, gives it much of the robust serenity, not of a fleshless skeleton, but of a fine nude stature. In these regions, at any rate, the tone of the air for the eye, during the brief desolation, has often an extraordinary charm. Nature still smiles, as with the deputed and provisional charity of colour and light, the duty of not ceasing to cheer man's heart. Her whole behaviour at the time cast such a spell on the broken bridge, the little walled town and the trudging friar, that I turned away with the impatient vow and fond vision of how I would take the journey again and pause to my heart's content at Narni, at Spoleto, at Assisi, at Perugia, at Cortona, at Arezzo. But we have generally to clip our vows a little when we come to fulfil them, and so it befell that when my blessed springtime arrived, I had to begin as resignedly as possible, yet with comparative meagerness, at Assisi. I suppose enjoyment would have a simple zest which it often lacks if we always did things at the moment we want to, for it's mostly when we can't that we're thoroughly sure we would, and we can answer too little for moods in the future conditional. Winter, at least, seemed to me to have put something into these seats of antiquity that the May sun had more or less melted away. A desirable strength of tone, a depth upon depth of queerness and quaintness. As Cece had been in the January twilight, after my mere snatch at Narni, a vignette out of some brown old missile. But you have to be a fearless explorer now to find ever fine spring day 
any such cluster of curious objects as doesn't seem made to match before anything else Mr. Bidecker's polyglot estimate of its chief recommendations. This great man was at Assisi in force, and a brand new inn for his accommodation had just been opened cheek by jowl with the Church of St. Francis. I don't know that even the dire discomfort of this harbourage makes it seem less impertinent, but I confess I sought its protection, and the great view seemed hardly less beautiful from my window than from the gallery of the convent. This view embraces the whole wide reach of Umbria, which becomes, as twilight deepens, a purple counterfeit of the misty sea. The visitor's first errand is with the church, and it's fair furthermore to admit that when he has crossed the threshold, the position and quality of his hotel cease for a time to be matters of moment. The twofold temple of St. Francis is one of the very sacred places of Italy, and it will be hard to breathe anywhere an air more heavy with holiness. Such seems especially the case if you happen thus to have come from Rome, where everything ecclesiastical is in aspect so very much of this world, so florid, so elegant, so full of accommodations and excrescences. The mere sight here makes for authority. And they were brave builders who laid the foundation stones. The thing rises straight from a steep mountainside, and plunges forward on its great substructure of arches, even as a crowned headland may frown over the main. Before it stretches a long grassy piazza, at the end of which you look up at a small grey street, to see it first, climb a little way up the rest of the hill, and then pause, and leave a broad green slope, crested high in the air with the ruined castle. When I say before it, I mean before the upper church, for by way of doing something supremely handsome and impressive, the sturdy architects of the 13th century piled temple upon temple, and bequeathed a double version of their idea. One may imagine them to have intended, perhaps, an architectural image of the relation between heart and head. Entering the lower church at the bottom of the great flight of steps which leads from the upper door, you seem to push at least into the very heart of Catholicism. For the first minutes after leaving the clearer gloom, you catch nothing but a vista of low black columns closed by the great fantastic cage surrounding the altar, which is thus placed by your impression in a sort of gorgeous cavern. Gradually you distinguish details, become accustomed to the penetrating chill, and even manage to make out a few frescoes. But the general effect remains splendidly sombre and subterranean. The vaulted roof is very low, and the pillars dwarfish, though immense in girth, as befits pillars supporting substantially a cathedral. The tone of the place is a triumph of mystery. 
the richest harmony of lurking shadows and dusky corners, all relieved by scattered images and scintillations. There was little light but what came through the windows of the choir, over which the red curtains had been dropped and were beginning to glow with the downward sun. The choir was guarded by a screen, behind which a dozen venerable voices droned vespers, but over the top of the screen came the heavy radiance and played among the ornaments of the high fence around the shrine, casting the shadow of the whole elaborate mass forward into the obscured nave. The darkness of vaults and side chapels is overwrought with vague frescoes, most of them by Giotto and his school, out of which confused richness the terribly distinct little faces characteristic of these artists stare at you with a solemn formalism. Some are faded and injured, many so ill-lighted and ill-placed that you can only glance at them with decent conjecture. The great group, however, four paintings by Giotto on the ceiling above the altar, may be examined with some success. Like everything of that grim and beautiful master, they deserve examination, but with the effect ever of carrying one's appreciation in and in, as it were, rather than carrying it out and out, off and off as happens to us with those artists who have been helped by the process of evolution to grow wings. This one, going in for emphasis at any price, stamps hard, as who should say, on the very spot of his idea. Thanks to which fact he has a concentration that has never been surpassed. He was, in other words, in proportion to his means, a genius supremely expressive. He makes the very shade of an intended meaning or a represented attitude so unmistakable that his figures affect us at moments as creatures all too suddenly, too alarmingly, too menacingly met. Meagre, primitive, undeveloped, he yet is immeasurably strong. He even suggests that if he had lived the new span of years later, Michelangelo might have found a rival. Not that he is given, however, to complicated postures or superhuman flights. There's something strange that troubles and haunts us in his work springs rather from a kind of fierce familiarity. It is part of the wealth of the lower church that it contains an admirable primitive fresco by an artist of genius rarely encountered, Pietro Cavallini, pupil of Giotto. This represents the crucifixion, the three crosses rising into a sky spotted with the winged heads of angels, while a dense crowd presses below. You will nowhere see anything more direfully lugubrious or more approaching for direct force, though not, of course, for amplitude of style, Tintoretto's great renderings of the scene in Venice. The abject anguish of the crucified and the straddling authority and brutality of the mounted guards in the foreground are contrasted 
in a fashion worthy of a great dramatist. But the most poignant touch is the tragic grimaces of the little angelic heads that fall like hailstones through the dark air. It is genuine realistic weeping, the act of irrepressible crying that the painter has depicted, and the effect is pitiful at the same time as grotesque. There are many more frescoes besides. All the chapels on one side are lined with them, but these are chiefly interesting in their general impressiveness, as they people the dim recesses with startling presences, with apparitions out of scale. Before leaving the place, I lingered long near the door, for I was sure I shouldn't soon again enjoy such a feast of scenic composition. The opposite end glowed with subdued colour. The middle portion was vague and thick and brown, with two or three scattered worshippers looming through the obscurity, while all the way down the polished pavement, its uneven slabs glittering dimly in the obstructed light, was of the very essence of expensive picture. It is certainly desirable, if one takes the lower church of St. Francis to represent the human heart, that one should find a few bright places there. But if the general effect is a brightness terrorised and smothered, is the symbol less valid? For the contracted, prejudiced, passionate heart, let it stand. One thing, at all events, we can say, that we should rejoice to boast as compacious, symmetrical and well-ordered a head as the upper sanctuary. Thanks to these merits, in spite of a brave array of grotesque work, which has the advantage of being easily seen, it lacks the great character of its counterpart. The frescoes, which are admirable, represent certain leading events in the life of St. Francis, and suddenly remind you by one of those anomalies that are half the secret of the consummate mise-en-scene of Catholicism, that the apostle of beggary, the saint whose only tenement in life was the ragged robe which barely covered him, is the hero of this massive structure. Church upon church, nothing less will adequately shroud his consecrated clay. The great reality of Giotto's designs adds to the helpless wonderment with which we feel the passionate pluck of the hero, the sense of being separated from it by an impassable gulf, the reflection on all that has come and gone to make morality at that vertiginous pitch impossible. There are no such high places of humility left to climb to. An observant friend who has lived long in Italy lately declared to me, however, that she detested the name of this moralist, deeming him chief propagator of the Italian vice most trying to the would-be lover of the people, the want of personal self-respect. There is a solidarity in the use of soap, and every cringing beggar, idler, liar and pilferer flourished for her under the shadow of the great 
Franciscan indifference to it. She was possibly right. At Rome, at Naples, I might have admitted she was right. But at Assisi, face to face with Giotto's vivid chronicle, we admire too much in its main subject the exquisite play of that subject's genius. We don't remit to him, and this for very envy, a single throb of his consciousness. It took in that human, that divine embrace, everything but soap. I should find it hard to give an orderly account of my next adventures or impressions at Assisi, which couldn't well be anything more than mere romantic flonnerie. One can easily plead as the final result of a meditation at the Shrine of St. Francis a great and even an amused charity. This state of mind led me slowly up and down for a couple of hours through the steep little streets, and at last stretched itself on the grass with me in the shadow of the great ruined castle that decorates so grandly the eminence above the town. I remember edging along the sunless side of the small mouldy houses and pausing very often to look at nothing in particular. It was all very hot, very hushed, very resignedly, but very persistently old. A wheeled vehicle in such a place is an event, and the forestieros interrogative tread in the blank sonorous lanes has the privilege of bringing the inhabitants to their doorways. Some of the better houses, however, achieve a sombre stillness that protests against the least curiosity as to what may happen in any such century as this. You wonder as you pass what lingering old-world social types vegetate there. But you won't find out albeit that in one very silent little street I had a glimpse of an open door which I have not forgotten. A long-haired peddler, who must have been a Jew, and who yet carried without prejudice a burden of mass books and rosaries, was offering his wares to a stout old priest. The priest had opened the door rather stingily and appeared half-heartedly to dismiss him. But the peddler held up something I couldn't see. The priest wavered with a timorous concession to profane curiosity and then furtively pulled the agent of sophistication, or whatever it might be, into the house. I should have liked to enter with that worthy. I saw later some gentlemen of Assisi who also seemed bored enough to have found entertainment in his trade. They were at the door of the cafe on the piazza, and were so thankful to me for asking them the way to the cathedral, that answering all in chorus, they lighted up with smiles as sympathetic as if I had done them a favour. Of that type were my mild, my delicate adventures. The piazza has a fine old portico of an ancient temple of Minerva six fluted columns and a pediment of beautiful proportions but sadly battered and decayed goethe i believe found it much more interesting than the mighty medieval church 
and Goethe as a Tigerone doubtless would have persuaded me that it was so. But in the humble society of Murray, we shall most of us find a richer sense in the later monument. I found quaint old meanings enough in the dark yellow facade of the small cathedral as I sat on a stone bench by the oblong green stretch before it. This is a pleasing piece of Italian Gothic, and like several of its companions at Assisi, has an elegant wheel window and a number of grotesque little carvings of creatures human and bestial. If, with Goethe, I were to balance anything against the attractions of the double church, I should choose the ruined castle on the hill above the town. I had been having glimpses of it all the afternoon at the end of steep street vistas, and promising myself half an hour beside its grey walls at sunset. The sun was very late, setting, and my half-hour became a long lounge in the lee of an abutment which arrested the gentle uproar of the wind. The castle is a splendid piece of ruin, perched on the summit of the mountain to whose slope Assisi clings, and dropping a pair of stony arms to enclose the little town in its embrace. The city wall, in other words, straggles up the steep green hill and meets the crumbling skeleton of the fortress. On the side off from the town, the mountain plunges into a deep ravine, the opposite face of which is formed by the powerful undraped shoulder of Monte Subasio, a fierce reflector of the sun. Gorge and mountain are wild enough, but their frown expires in the teeming softness of the great Vale of Umbria. To lie aloft there on the grass, with silver-grey ramparts at one's back and the warm rushing wind in one's ears, and watch the beautiful plain mellow into the tones of twilight, was as exquisite a form of repose as ever fell to a tired tourist's lot. End of section twenty four.